日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome to the fifth Samurai Archives podcast. Actually, this time we'll be taking a step back in time to last year where we interviewed Travis Seifman.、Uh, he wrote an article which has been recently published, the title of which is Seals of Red and Letters of Gold Japanese Relations with Southeast Asia in the 17th Century. This podcast was done with Joseph, who will actually be returning from Japan to join our podcast again、uh, next month. And as always, you can reach us on Twitter at Samurai Archives, and you can also send us an email if you want. At samuraipodcast at gmail.com. Well, that's enough for an intro, so enjoy the show. Welcome to the Samurai Archives Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Joseph. And we're here with Travis Seifman. I'm excited to be here. Travis Seifman is a graduate student at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, studying art history with a focus on Edo period art.、Yeah. So today we'll be talking to Travis、uh, about his soon to be published article, Seals of Red and Letters of Gold. Japanese relations with Southeast Asia in the 17th century. And can you tell us what is that going to be published in?、Uh, it's going to be published in the、uh, University of Hawaii、uh, Graduate Student Journal of Southeast Asian Studies, which is called Explorations.、Uh, it's supposed to come out in the spring issue. so... Is that going to be? Some, sometime soon. Okay. Now, is that going to be available on the internet? or how is and, that, and that should be available freely on the internet. You shouldn't, I don't think you need any kind of subscription or membership to get access to it. Look forward to reading it. So, Travis, For our listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background? Well, I, I did my undergrad at、uh, Brandeis near Boston.、Hmm. And, um, and then I went on to a master's,、uh, master's degree in Japanese studies at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London.、Okay. Um, and this article actually is my master's thesis from,、uh, from London. So,、um, so I got a degree there, and, and now I'm getting a second master's in Hawaii. Okay. Well, that's great that you'll, you'll be able to use your, your MA thesis and publish it, and、mm-hmm. hopefully use that as a, a stepping stone to the next level. Hopefully. Getting published is very exciting. Yeah, it's, it's publish or perish, I hear. This is, this is the <laughs> first time I'm getting published.、So. <laughs> You've been perishing until now. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Without any further ado, let's dive into the first question.、Um, sure. What are these seals of red that you base the title of your paper on? And letters of gold. And letters of gold. Well, the seals of red refer to.、Um, Formal licenses granted by the shogunate and by、um, other people before that, mainly Hideyoshi before the shogunate.、Um, formal licenses granted to、uh, merchants, traders to travel overseas,、um, marked them as, as being you know, approved by the government. To engage in commerce. To engage in commerce and, and as not being pirates. So, what physical form did they take? They, they were formal letters written out in calligraphy and then stamped with, with a red、mm-hmm. seal. Okay. There's actually some interesting stories about, interesting anecdotes about individual figures who you know, did not have a seal because that, that had not been implemented yet or something.、Mm-hmm. And so the government of Vietnam or w- whichever nation polity wrote back to the shogunate and said, you know, we have, We've captured this guy who we think is a pirate. You know, what, which, 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 what should we do with him?、Mm-hmm. And Ieyasu wrote back and said, In, in future, I'll make sure that people have these letters, and if they have these letters and they're not pirates, and if they don't have these letters, then they are pirates. In any case, the, the Letters of Gold, which is the second half of the title, refers to sort、um, of formal diplomatic documents that were sent by Southeast Asian countries to Japan.、Um, and each, each polity, each place, Vietnam and Cambodia, had different 
very different ways of, of doing their wetters, different things. But, um, but some of them were in fact written on sheets of gold um, and then rolled up inside a rhinoceros tusk. And Whoa. Uh, sort of fancy, you know, lavishly carved ivory and sent uh, to Japan that way. It's fascinating. I, I wonder if that's, I wonder if these, uh, these seals <coughs> of red, these, uh, these uh, licenses for commerce, I wonder what relation they have to the, the Muromachi period, the Kangofu, the tallies for trade. Right. Is it a, I wonder if there's a natural evolution there. There probably is. I don't know that much about the Muromachi mm. uh, case, but, um, but it, it, the, the term definitely came up in my research, and there definitely is some kind of connection. Connection there. Next, you mentioned the term shuinsen in your in your paper. Can you elaborate on what, what exactly these, these boats are? Right. So sh shuin is literally a red seal mm. or a vermilion seal, and sen is boat. So they're basically... The Shuinsen are, are those ships that had formal licenses, and um, and it's just it's a very common term that's used in, in scholarship to refer to, in scholarship to refer to um, the Shuinsen trade or mm. something to that, okay. as as a period or as a um, phenomenon. Okay. Well, what I wanted to ask is since your paper also deals with the uh, Sakoku, the closing of Japan, right. the the typical uh, common belief, I guess you could say, is that. Uh, Japan was closed off because of the threat of Christianity, which may or may not be the case, as you mentioned. But if that is the case, well, why would they also shut off uh, or nearly shut off all trade from uh, Southeast Asia as well, where obviously there really isn't any relation between traders from, say, Vietnam or Korea? Right. Well, I think the, the question of why exactly Japan instituted these, these policies is a very complicated one, and I'm really not quite sure exactly, I'm not sure if we'll ever know exactly what reasons they had, but to whatever extent that we want to say that Christianity was the main reason, other places like Korea and Southeast Asia were full of missionaries and were not, and even though they were Buddhist countries, they were not themselves closed off to that influence. And so the shoguns were, were afraid of, of foreign influences, including Christianity, but not limited to Christianity, coming in and, and in, in one way or another, leading to, to uh, uh, instability, uh, instability in um, so, in your opinion, it, it is was that a big uh, reason for Sokoku? Uh, I think it was the fear of Christianity. There were major Christian populations, not only just in the Philippines or you know places really directly controlled by Spain like that, but in, in Macau, which was controlled by the Portuguese, and sort of throughout um, there was a Portuguese settlement in um, in Taiwan for a little while. There was a Portuguese settlement in Timor. So a lot of those different kinds of influences coming. Moving along, what factors do you attribute to the expansion of trade after the 16th century or the Sengoku period? Well, there's a scholar named Iwao Se Seiichi, who's basically, he, he literally wrote the book on Japanese settlements in Southeast Asia hmm. um, in the late 16th to 17th century. Um, and he cites three main, um, three main factors. One being the lack of trade with China. At that time, China basically felt that... Uh, Japan wasn't doing enough to get rid of the Wako, the, the Japanese, the quote-unquote Japanese pirates, um, and and more to the point, also Japan refused to um, subordinate itself to China as a tributary. So China refused to trade officially with with Japan. Therefore, Japanese traders went and sought other places to um, to obtain goods, namely Southeast Asia. Now you you, uh, you say quote-unquote Japanese pirates for the term Wako. What is the uh what is the quote-unquote there? I, I was under the impression that the Wako were, were Japanese pirates. Well, the, the term, the, 
the the wa in wako yes. refers specifically to Japan. Yes. But the pirates that were active in the waters at that time were Koreans, Chinese, Siamese, all, all different kinds of peoples. So, um, so in a broad sweep of the pen, they were perhaps mislabeled. Basically. Okay. Um, and especially after the Ming Falls in 1644, the, uh, the Qing Dynasty, the Qing Dynasty labels Ming loyalists, Ming rebels, hmm. also as, you know, pirates. And, and so it, it gets very complicated. It's not entirely Japanese. And it was not, it, I don't think it was ever in any case, something that the shoguns officially organized and funded. It was just sort of random scattered criminals yeah. acting as pirates or genuine uh, uh, upright merchants mm. who were not doing anything criminal who were being labeled as pirates. Okay. So, um, in any case, the... Um, um, sure. So I was just wondering, actually, in regards to the Wako, was the shogunate aware that these weren't necessarily Japanese or maybe the majority weren't Japanese? I haven't seen any specific um, sources that explicitly say whether or not the shogunate was aware of this. But the impression that I get is that the shogunate was a, was aware that most of these pirates were not, or, or that at least some of these pirates were not Japanese. Do you think China thought that they they did, and these wako were actually uh, paid by the shogunate, or at least uh, directed by the shogunate? Because they seem to be uh, sending a lot of heat towards them, saying you need to clean up your waters here. The impression that I get, and I haven't read that much about the wako, and other people on the forum might be uh, more well informed on this. But the impression I get is that the Chinese basically just didn't care whether or not uh, it was officially organized by the show. They just, you know, insisted anyway. Uh, you've got to do something about this. We don't really care if you, if it, if it is your fault or not, or if you can control it. You know, we're, we're just... We're, that, 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 those are demands if, if you want to trade with, with us, the Middle Kingdom, the, the great source of, of all things. And so. if I remember correctly, official trade with Ming China began under Yoshimitsu, right? In Yoshimitsu... In what was it, fourteen oh two or four, I believe. Something like that. And, w and when did it end? Fifteen four. I'm not sure. Believe, it ended sometime in the Sengoku period. Okay. Um, and then, when then there was nobody really controlling. There was nobody really in charge of Japan for what fifty or sixty years, something like that. And then, uh, you know, it came to be Hideyoshi. Uh, Arano, ya Arano Yasunori has written a wonderful article about Hideyoshi's attitudes towards. Um, um, towards Japan's role in, in the Chinese world order mm. and how Hideyoshi and the Tokugawa shoguns after him basically just refused to be a subordinate tributary mm. to China. And that's which is why, there, which is another major re part of the reason that there was no formal trade with China throughout this period. So the other two reasons for oh. the expansion of trade in Sen after Sengoku... Forgive me. No, uh, if, 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 um, was basically just that, number one, the end of Sengoku meant greater peace and stability, um, which meant that daimyo could, could uh, redirect efforts towards economic purposes rather than just military purposes, and the merchants themselves could go out and trade with uh, less, less concern about you know, being attacked or something like that. Mm. And, um, ah, and the third reason being um, just sort of increased movements toward internationalization in the region as a whole, brought on in large part by... Um, by the Westerners, by the Portuguese and the Dutch and the English and the French and the Spanish. So now that you mentioned uh, the international elements, who was Japan trading with then in the, in the Edo period? Well, in, in the Edo period, once the, so once the uh, maritime restrictions were put into place... And uh, when were those put into place? In the 1630s. Okay. So starting, in the, starting from the 1630s, running through, the, um, through sort of the 1850s, 
Japan was only trading with the Ainu in the north, Korea, um, Ryukyu um, in the south, and um, the Dutch and the Chinese at, uh, at Nagasaki. So it was only those four sources. Um, but prior to 1630, sort of in the, in the period that my paper focuses on, from roughly 1590 or so until the 1630s, Japan was trading with basically everyone who was active in the region. Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, um, unofficial Chinese traders, independent Chinese traders that did not represent the government, um, the Ryukyu Kingdom, Korea, um, the Spanish, the Dutch, the English. Everyone under the sun, it seems. Basically. And this, this naturally leads into a, a, a concern or question of uh, Sakoku, mm-hmm. the uh, we see some sort of continuity issue between uh, at least what we're taught in, in Japanese classes at, at university or, or what we usually read is that Japan closed its doors during the period of Sakoku, closed its doors and was complete, well, in a, in a vacuum state. It was completely sealed off from the outside world. And yet, it seems that this perhaps is not the case. And I know that in recent years, the actual term Sakoku has come under fire for not being an accurate representation of, of the time. Can you elaborate a little on that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly true. Um, a lot of a lot of scholarship in the last 20 or 30 years is focused upon just how much uh, how much interaction with the outside world Japan had. And they, they were trading, like I said, with the Ainu, with the Koreans, the, uh, the Ryukyuans, Chinese, and the Dutch in the, Edo, in the Edo period. And not only, you know, importing all kinds of goods, but also all kinds of cultural, cultural exchange and information. Um, so... I mean, people in Japan knew when um, when the Ming fell in 1644. They knew when when China lost the first Opium War in 1842. I want to say 1842. Um, so I mean, there was definitely information coming in and out, and there was all kinds of stuff from the Dutch um, in terms of oil painting and telescopes and books of human anatomy and all kinds mm. of, of things. So there was definitely lots of connections. Now the word Sakoku usually translated as closed country, really means chained country or something yes. like that. The Sa is, I think, Kusari. Yes. So it's really chains. But, um, uh, so anyway, for that reason, because because Japan was not really closed, um, some scholars, mainly um, Arano Yasunori, some other people, have suggested using the word kaikin. Kaikin. Yeah, ocean and, and, and I guess, prohibitions. Mm. So mar- maritime prohibitions. Okay. Um, in place of In place Sakoku. of Sakoku. Which is exactly the same term that the Chinese used. Um, Sagoku is. Uh, Kaikin. Kaikin. Kaikin, pronounced, I don't know the tones, but something like hygiene mm-hmm. in Chinese is exactly the same term that the Chinese themselves actually used for their restrictions against Japanese trade mm-hmm. and against um, trade with other, other people. I don't know, I think, I think maritime prohibitions is a much better, much better uh, word for, much better term for this for these prohibitions that were put into place. Fascinating, thank you. So you mentioned in your article that uh, Japan had been possibly trying to collect tributary states to show China that it could uh, interact on an equal footing rather than as a uh, tributary state itself with China. Could you uh, right. elaborate on that? Um, I'm not sure if the shogunate ever really uh, pursued that that uh, avenue, but certainly uh, Hideyoshi at some point did, did think about uh, that kind of idea of pursuing, um, of trying to obtain tribu- tributary states, um, and obviously, as we all as we all know, he invaded Korea. Um, he also appointed a, um, a a vassal to be uh, 
lord of, of Ryukyu, even though Hideyoshi never actually made any attempt to take over Ryukyu. Um, and, but he did also send letters to the Spanish authorities in the Philippines, um, demanding that they pay him tribute and, and subordinate themselves to his authority. So Hideyoshi definitely had those kinds of plans, but it never really panned out um, for him, and, and the shogunate did not really pursue those ideas. Um, Ryukyu did become a vassal to Satsuma Han, to the Shimazu clan, but I'm not quite sure if that was really part of some grand shogun, shogunal scheme. There are a lot of other reasons why, why that happened, um, and that's something else. It's a topic for another day, maybe. So uh, Japan never really picked up these uh, vassal states, I guess you could call them? Or, uh, I know yeah. that Japan seemed to have a lot of influence in, in Thailand, for example. But uh, Thailand was still sort of its own uh, domain. It was never taken over. Uh, what sort of uh, influence did Japan have over there? Yeah, I mean, I, I really wouldn't say that there was anywhere other than Ryukyu that Japan could have, could have ever called a vassal state, that they ever really had that kind of authority. There were certain, in, in, I, um, in Ayutthaya, which was the, the capital of the uh, Siamese kingdom at that time, there were some, ha, some prominent Japanese individuals who made their way uh, up into sort of high-ranking positions in, in the, um, the Ayutthaya court, um, which, which is something that happened in a lot of courts around Southeast Asia. But, they, but these people, such as Yamada Nagamasa, were not representatives of the shogunate. They were not, in any way, agents of a greater Japanese scheme. They, they were really just servants of, of the Thai king. So. Okay. I, I know you also mentioned that there was a lot of adoption and marriage uh, to sort of solidify trading ties, maybe between traders or trading groups. Uh, I'm assuming that that wasn't uh, daimyo sending their, their daughters to uh, Vietnam. No. So what, what exactly were you referring to when you yeah. mentioned that? That was something I thought was very interesting because a lot of royal families or, or aristocratic families in Southeast Asia, um, particularly the Nguyen family, which, um, which, were, which ruled southern Vietnam um, during this period, uh, the Nguyen family married, uh, married into or married with uh, uh, members of various like Osaka merchant families and things like that. So these merchants who were really at the bottom of the social order in Japan were marrying into aristocratic families or, or, or royal families in Southeast Asia. Um, and, you, and there are still there are still a few families in uh, Kansai who have uh, sort of special gifts given to their family by the um, by the uh, by the Nguyen, and there's Japanese graves in um, in, in the Nguyen royal graveyards and things like that. So where did the uh, descendants end up? Were they cut off from Japan with Sokoku, or were there Vietnamese Japanese who ended up in Japan? Any idea how that actually turned out? Um, once the, uh, the Kaikin maritime pr uh, prohibitions were put into place, no Japanese were allowed to return to Japan. Um, so basically everyone that was living in these Japanese communities in Southeast Asia eventually just um, assimilated into the, the Southeast Asian um, ethnicities, Southeast Asian peoples. And meanwhile in Japan, actually I find this rather interesting, there was, uh, from, what, from everything I read, the numbers were incredibly low, but some small number of people, Chinese, Koreans, Vietnamese, were allowed to basically just become Japanese. They're allowed to call themselves Japanese and assimilate into um, Japanese society in the Edo period as well. So the shogunate, did not send these marriage partners no. to Vietnam. They went independently, perhaps right. merchants or... Yeah, these were all 
uh, these were all merchants, Ronin, um, sort of other people who, mm -hmm. for one reason or another, had, had reason to seek their fortunes in, in Southeast Asia. Um, it, it was not in any way organized by the shogunate. Okay. Marriage is a, is a tool, is a fascinating topic. We, we sometimes see that in the Muromachi period, after the Onin War and, and Kyoto, after Kyoto was, was hit hard by the Onin War, we see a lot of uh, not necessarily disenfranchised nobles, but we see many nobles who, who, uh, whose mansions were burnt to the ground and who lost their fortunes marrying into uh, merchant families in order to uh, you know, regain what they had lost. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I hadn't known about that. It, it's fascinating. As far as, as, far as marriage as a, as a tool, do we, do, now we see, we see the marriage partners who were sent to uh, Vietnam, assimilating into Vietnam. How is the assimilation as far as a coax, uh, international couples in Japan? Oh, right. So, um, that's true. At, at, when, when, the, when the maritime prohibitions were put into place, Japanese um, who were abroad weren't allowed to come back, and so they just assimilated into the, the communities, the ethnicities in um, Southeast Asia. And meanwhile, in, in Japan, I think I, I already said this, that the Chinese and the Koreans and various other peoples in Japan were allowed to make that decision to, mm. um, to just sort of become Japanese. Um, and this kind of phenomenon goes on in, into the Edo period, where um, at, at any point, sort of, well, when, when the Dutch and Dejima were, were having relations with Japanese courtesans, for example, the children were, the children were allowed to uh, either, you know, sort of, I'm not sure if was the children made the decision or the parents, but basically the, the child was allowed to either stay with their Japanese mother, in which case they're not allowed to visit their fathers in, you know, they're, 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 if they stayed with the Japanese mothers, they were Japanese and they were not allowed to leave the country mm -hmm. to go to Batavia or to go to Holland. Um, and if they stayed with the Dutch father, then they were not allowed to enter Japan. They had to stay in, in Dejima um, or, you know, go home with the father to Holland or wherever it was. Um, mm -hmm. Very pointedly separated, very... Very divided. Very divided, but but it's still interesting to me that 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 it was not simply foreigners and Japanese. That foreigners, there was some very limited ways in which foreigners could become Japanese. So looking at the big picture here, uh, Japan is dealing with all of these countries. Has a lot of sounds like it has a, actually a fair amount of influence in Vietnam, in Siam or Thailand. Uh, where was China's stance about what was actually going on there? Did, did China? What was China's thoughts on, on all of Japan's activities in, in their tributary states? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, the, the impression I get is basically just that basically China was not doing any official trading with Japan, and that was part of their, their reaction. That was, if you're going to operate like this, then we're not going to, if you're going to refuse to be a tributary state, then we're not going to trade with you. Hmm. Um, I don't think that there was actually, I mean, in terms of what the court believed, yeah, I'm not sure what the main court would have said about any of this, but individual Chinese merchants operating independently absolutely interacted with the Japanese um, in these Southeast Asian ports um, and and in Nagasaki, um, you know, very actively. So, and if I'm uh, <coughs> uh, if I'm if I'm making you repeat yourself or I'm beating a dead horse, let me know. But how did Japan fit into Chinese China's world order, and then how did Japan view itself? in China's world order, for not, not necessarily how did Japan view itself in its own world order, but how did Japan view itself in China's world order compared to the Chinese view of Japan in their own world order? How does the, how does the, the relationship work on paper rather than in reality? Well, on paper, uh, I, I guess I would say that 
China saw Japan as you know, an, an inferior country that should be a tributary and is refusing so to... So like a, a rogue state. Something like a rogue state <laughs> that, that is just refusing to, to play along with, 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 what, with, with, with how the world order is supposed to work. Um, and certainly in terms of Hideyoshi's invasion of Korea, mm-hmm. Japan was, was, very, it was very much in the Ming eyes acting like a rogue state. Um, and later on, when, when Japan sent, um, sent arms and munitions to the Ming rebels on, on, on Taiwan, who were trying to reinstate the Ming dynasty to topple the Qing, um, I'm not quite sure to what extent the Qing were aware that this was going on, but that certainly went on as well. So was, and when was that? That would have been like 1660s, maybe, something like that. Okay, late 17th century. Yeah, the, 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 the Ming fell in 1644, um, and Coxinga, um, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it properly, but they call him Coxinga, led a whole bunch of, a whole group of, of rebels um, based on Formosa, on Taiwan, um, and, and they continued to fight to try to topple the Qing until 1680s. Okay. And there were Japanese arms merchants? Basically supplying them is that uh yes um, with the with with the express permission of uh, actually in these particular cases it was with the shogunate's um, I, I, either at the shogunate's orders or with the shogunate's permission. So you don't think they saw that as maybe a slippery slope? Well, in retrospect, obviously it wasn't, but at the time you don't think they were taking the risk that if by sending out merchants and people from Japan that maybe they'd be inviting. Uh, Maybe that they're because of breaking their own rules. I guess you could say they may be inviting others to do the same thing, other merchants to get a little more active. Oh well, it wasn't Japanese merchants who were going to Taiwan at that time. Um, so it was kind of done via. It was, yeah, I see. So it was done via Dejima or in Nagasaki that uh, they was, were supplying foreign merchants at these ports. Exactly. Then. It, was, it was done through the Ryukyu Kingdom so that the shogunate could could. Um, Hide behind that curtain. Could, could totally claim what's the word? Uh, Pro- plausible di- deniability. Plausible deniability. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I'm not quite sure exactly whether it was Ryukyuan merchants who were going <coughs> down to Taiwan, maybe, or maybe it was Taiwanese, uh, that is to say, Chinese, coming up to Naha. But um, yeah, it was done through through the Ryukyus, um, selling arms and and uh, sulfur and other sort of materials used to make. Uh, make munitions to make arms. And um, on, on a similar line of reasoning, as far as uh, as far as going through uh, various ports, is 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 this is this image correct? We're going back to trade. Do we see Japan trading directly with with the I guess the uh, the destination port, or is is there a, a a web of of stepping stones? How? How international was trade with one singular company, uh, not company, country? I think, well, one, one of the key things is to remember is, is that when we, talk, when we talk about Japan trading in this period, mm. this was not like the shogunate, you know, ordering and, and commanding and sort of organizing all the trade. It was independent merchants operating in different ways. Um, although, admittedly, a lot of things that were imported then became part of a shogul, shogunal uh, monopoly. So, um, but in any case, but... The word, the word um, entrepot is important in, in this period, and a lot of places, na- mainly the Ryukyus, were centers of entrepot trade, meaning that Japan wasn't really necessarily importing that much Ryukyuan goods that was grown or made in Ryukyu, but rather that Ryukyu um, and certainly Nagasaki and other places just operated as, as ports through which things were traded. 
Um, so Japanese merchants in Ryukyu, in, um, in Thailand, in Vietnam, were obtaining Chinese goods, they were obtaining Arabian goods, um, there were Arabs operating in, in all of these Southeast Asian um, ports as well. So it was really a, sort of a, a mix of goods from all over the place being available at each of these ports. So where, where was the, uh, the largest concentration of Japanese overseas? Ayutthaya, the capital of the Siamese Kingdom, again, was in fact um, one, one of the two largest uh, Nihomachi, one of the two largest Japanese settlements at this time. Um, and uh, in the 1620s, at the peak of that settlement, they had about 50, they, we believe that they had about 1,500 Japanese residents. Um, and throughout this period, 1590 to 1630 or so, um, Japan was Ayutthaya's most major trading partner. Although, sort of on the other side of things, in terms of who was Japan's most major trading partner, um, that was actually uh, the port of Hoi An in southern Vietnam. Hmm. So roughly one quarter of all Japanese trade was going to or, or from Hoi An um, at this time. And there's a lot, there seems to be a lot less scholarship on Cambodia at this time and on Japanese living in Cambodia. But at some point, it, it is, it's believed that that community also reached about 1,500 um, citizens, residents, which I think is interesting, particularly in light of the fact that Hoi An in Vietnam, which had so much activity and so much economic importance, never had more than a few hundred Japanese living there. Considerably different. Considerably different. Okay, so I, I guess that essentially wraps up the, uh, the interview. Um, just wanted to ask one question. Um, I noticed that uh, I, I read the whole thing here and not once did I see the phrase vis-a-vis. -vis. And now, how, how do you uh, intend to become a scholar if you don't use the term vis-a-vis? -vis? <laughs> I use that term all the time. I'm really surprised it didn't appear in the article. Perhaps, perhaps it's a, a development that has occurred after the publication of it, or after the uh, submission of the last MA thesis. Okay, because I was, I was, you know, I was thinking to myself, <laughs> how, how can this guy get an article published without using the term vis-a-vis -vis at least once in 35 pages of text? <laughs> I, I'm really surprised to hear that it's not in there. We'd like to see you put more effort into using these terms. I, 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 I try. I really do. All right. <laughs> Thank you for the uh, interview, and... Now that we've got the bulk of the, of the interview over and covered your, your last MA thesis, um, where where do you see yourself going as far as research in Japan from here on? Where do you where do you see yourself focusing on? What do you what is your next major project? Yeah. Well, I've sort of turned away from the Southeast Asia aspect of it, although I'd be interested in going back to that. Um, and I'm really trying to focus now on um, Okinawa and the Ryukyu Kingdom uh, in the Edo period. Um, and in particular, right now I'm working on a project on sort of how Okinawans and, and Okinawa were depict were. Uh, were depicted in Edo period art, in Japanese art at, at this time, hmm. um, sort of tying into issues of Orientalism and, and other sort of other sort of issues related to depiction and, and, and perceptions and conceptions. Do you see this this research taking form in, in, as, as an article or? Well, this is going to be my, my master's thesis here. This in will Hawaii. be your master's thesis. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to reading that as well. I look forward to writing it. <laughs> well, thank you for coming today, Travis Seifman. We appreciate it. And, uh, Thanks for interviewing me. This is very exciting. Hopefully we can talk again soon. And Travis Seifman will actually be uh, traveling to Japan over the summer via scholarship for the intensive study of classical Japanese texts. So look forward to the, uh, the, uh, his continued development as a scholar of Japanese history. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to be going. This, uh, I've, I've never spent much time in Kansai before, so I'm excited to 
uh, learn our way around there and, and explore lots of exciting historical sites. Kansai is, is a beautiful place and it's very it's rich with uh, with medieval Japanese history. DJ Chichi here is always, from uh, from that area. DJ Chichi does hail from the uh, the Kansai. <laughs> I'm very excited about it. Although of course Kansai is, is uh, will never be as good as Kanto. We'll uh, we'll have to edit that part out later. <laughs> Well, thank you for accompanying us on our maiden voyage. <laughs> it's the uh, first installment of the Samurai Archives podcast. Yep. If you'd like to reach us, uh, you can send your comments or hate mail to samuraipodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's samuraipodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear your comments, your criticisms, your, uh, your love letters, and also topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the Samurai Archives podcast. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time. And that's a wrap.